0: I invite you to remain standing a moment longer for this morning's reading from the Gospel. I'll be reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 28 through 43a. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my Son, my Chosen. Listen to Him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent in those days and told no one any of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a story, one of those awe-inspiring stories, a, a story where we are left to imagine what uh, Peter, James, and John had just witnessed, a, an opportunity to perhaps remember some awe moments in our own lives. I bet you have had a few, some of you that have been blessed or fortunate enough to To travel, oftentimes as you go to uh, new places and and see all that God has created, you might find yourself in an awe-inspiring place. There are those occasions where oftentimes uh, we are in awe. Uh, Experiences, maybe that is the birth of a child. Uh, The opportunity to, uh, to be present at a marriage or a baptism. Uh, Perhaps you have been awe-inspired at a spiritual retreat or in other such matters. We should be constantly amazed at our God. This God that created us, this God that created us in, in God's own image, this God that created us to be in relationship with our God, all of this should cause us an awe moment. A man that I was reading about this uh, week uh, uh, decided he, he wanted to make a scale model of the universe. And so his plan was to start with a one-inch diameter ball bearing to represent the Earth. And what he realized as he uh, decided to make this model and did further study, scientific study, was that the closest star to the planet Earth, the, the star Alpha Centauri, Needed to be, this, this next ball bearing needed to be 51,000 miles away from the earth ball bearing. And so certainly the man realized this is not anything I can do in my home. This scale model of what God has created. You know, it's interesting how, uh, sometimes we want to, uh, commemorate events, those kinds of awe inspiring happenings in our world. Uh, yeah. Out here on the corner of this building, there is a cornerstone uh, that represents uh, when uh, a lot of love, a lot of sweat, equity, and certainly a a spiritual drive to create a place where people could come and worship our God. So this cornerstone from 1913 is one of those uh, awe-inspiring monuments, at least to me, and I, I think maybe to others in here. But when we travel, we find uh, historical markers. We see buildings, uh, we see monuments to people and to situations that have had some sort of impact, uh, most often, uh, depending on their size, to, to greater numbers of people. But it's interesting how we seek to commemorate those kinds of moments in this story that we call the transfiguration story. We hear Peter suggesting to Jesus that that a monument or a a shelter, some sort of a building needs to be built there on the top of this mountain so that it can be remembered what had been witnessed, what had occurred there on this mountain. Now, I find it interesting that depending on where you want to read, there are at least three suggested mountaintops uh, where this experience uh, took place. Uh, But certainly we have this notion that about eight days, according to Luke's testimony, eight days after Peter identifies correctly that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, he is in powerful ways identified to everybody that could hear. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter has already identified him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And eight days later, Jesus selects Peter... And brothers James and John to go up a mountaintop. Now these guys didn't know what to expect. I don't believe. Uh, Probably Peter is still kind of basking in the glow that he got one right, that he that he correctly named Jesus and who Jesus is. Now he hasn't figured out the connection of to of to what that's going to mean to the world, but at least he got part of it right. And so I think he's feeling pretty good as they hike up this mountaintop. And when they get there, Jesus says, "Now we've come to pray." We are here and we're going to pray. So as they enter into this time of prayer, uh, Peter, James, and John get kind of sleepy. Now, this story has another accounting also in Matthew's Gospel. And what I find interesting comparing Matthew and Luke's Gospel, a number of reasons, a number of ways, but in this particular story, the Greek word that Matthew uses for transfiguration is not the same Greek word that's used in Luke. So there's a subtle bit of, of difference in those uh, understandings from those Greek words. In Matthew's translation, uh, the change, the tr- transfiguration is, a, is, is simply the change of, of Jesus' appearance. In other words, Jesus himself hasn't changed, it's just what he looks like at the moment. At least through the eyes of Peter, James, and John. However, in Luke's gospel, the word, the Greek word that we get changed really means changed. Jesus seems to be changed according to what Luke is understanding. And I find that interesting because as the story continues to unfold, it's actually the disciples who are invited to be changed. Not Jesus, but the disciples. And so maybe that word that is used out of the Greek, as we, the audience, consume the story, as we listen to the story, as we look at the story, maybe it's a signal to us that that it's not just to be our outward appearance that changes, but maybe it's our heart that needs changing. But nevertheless, as the story continues, as, as the disciples wake up, they see Jesus talking to two people who, who it's obvious that they are, even though uh, Elijah and Moses uh, have been gone for hundreds of years. It seems that Peter, James, and John quickly figure out who who is with Jesus and they overhear Jesus telling Moses, who represents the law of the people, and Elijah who represents the the prophetic tradition of the, the Hebrew people. Jesus is explaining to them that he is on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill the purposes of God well in their in their sleepy state, perhaps in their uh you know, when you wake up and you still have sleep in your eyes and you're trying to find your glasses or the alarm clock or stumble to the restroom, all those things that happen to us while we sleep, perhaps it's that, that moment Peter just thinks, you know, hey, I just got one right eight days ago. I'm going to go ahead and throw another one out there and says, Jesus, we need to build some monuments here for these guys and you so that so that our, our grandchildren can come back and find this place so that, that it's forever in the record books. And Peter's gotten it wrong. And, he, and, and the story goes on to further suggest that on the next day when they come down from the mountain, when this man who is at wit's end with the situation in his family, the, the young boy that's convulsing that seems to be seized by demoniacs, and he tells Jesus, I asked your disciples. And they couldn't do it. And so Jesus says, you faithless generation. How long will this take? You see, Jesus, I think, took Peter, James, and John up that mountain so that they could be changed, so that as they looked up and and saw Jesus and this radical new appearance, the glowing face, the awe of the, the white around Him, the bright light, that maybe they could remember the story, the same story that Barbara read to us from Exodus, where Moses, as he encountered God, would come down with this remnant of God still about him. So much so that he had to put a veil on so that he could talk to the people. Friends, when was the last time you radiated Christ so much you needed to cover up with a veil so that you could talk to your family or your friends? You see, these awe moments, these opportunities we have to come to the mountaintop, they should be changing us because we can't stay there. We can't build a monument to impress people. It's not for us to point and say, over there you can find Christ. Christ wants to be in our heart and Christ wants to be radiated by our words and our actions so that this world knows we love we love our God and we love one another. You know, we, we try to impress people in a number of ways. I, I read a statistic. The pyramids uh, uh, we find typically in Egypt, and I know there's other places where pyramids can be found around our world, uh, but the Egyptian pyramids are what we most often think of when we talk about pyramids. You know, the pyramids, some of them are about 500 feet tall. and And archaeologists estimate that some of them contain about... blocks of stone, with each stone at least two tons apiece. And you begin to see the enormity of the pyramids. One uh, biblical scholar, one uh, uh, Protestant scholar said, look, within the base of a pyramid typically, you could find all of the great Italian cathedrals could fit In the base of one of those pyramids, that's how big they are. You could put the cathedrals from Florence and Milan. You could put St. Peter's from the Vatican in there. And additionally, you could add St. Paul's Cathedral in London and Westminster Abbey. The vastness of those pyramids could contain all of those places of worship in the base unit of the pyramid. That is huge, my friends. Huge but we don't know anything really about the people who built those pyramids. We know some about who charged the building of the pyramids, but we don't know much about the actual laborers who worked to create those. You know, in Napoleon's time, uh, uh, some of his uh, people estimated if they could disassemble some of those pyramids that they could construct a ten foot high, one foot wide wall around the entire realm of France to protect Napoleon's realm. And so again, these are massive, impressive kinds of structures. And yet, we sit here today, and so often we make our faith more like a monument, a thing. We'll wear a cross around our neck, we'll come to a Uh, a beautiful place of worship. We'll put a fish on the back of our car and certainly everybody will know I'm a Christian. And yet what Jesus is telling us here is that this following of Him, the Son of God, is not about monument construction, it's about a movement. And it's about us moving through a life of faith, finding ways to be God's loving presence, to give hope to this world to make a real and tangible difference in people's lives as we open up this heart that God has given us. A heart that the world doesn't understand, a heart that the world often rejects, and yet this awe moment has more to it. We are to be people of action. So how do we show ourselves to be credible to this world? How do we help people see in us this opportunity to live and love differently, how can we help other people believe that that we've not made a mistake, that that we are being transformed into the the loving, living presence of Almighty God? Well, again, our faces ought to be shining with that love. People shouldn't have to ask, what do you believe in Or, or how do you believe? The things that you say, the places where you go, the ways you behave ought to reflect the glow of God. You shouldn't be laughing at off-color jokes, racist comments. You, my friends, are God's love. And you can politely interject a new way of understanding other people, a new way of inviting others to come to know this God who loves everybody. Jesus shined and you and I should also. We should reflect God's love because sin distorts that. That separation from God, the the, the failure to see sin in our lives and in the world keeps us from shining brightly into people's darkened lives. So think about that. When we fail to act, when we fail to show love, when we fail to be God's presence in someone's lives, sin has made more room than love has but by God's grace, you and I can be different people. Robert Schuler in one of his books uh, recounted the story of, of Helen of Troy. Uh, Helen was uh, captured. She was to be the queen of, of, uh, of Troy. And, and, and she was uh, while she was in captivity, she was uh, mistreated and ultimately forgotten about uh, in Shuler's book. And, and, and one day, this faithful friend of Helen who had searched for years and years finally finds this woman in a marketplace, uh, abandoned. She had uh, uh, been a prostitute, uh, was was living a life uh, that was uh, very bad, certainly not for someone who was expected to be the queen. And this friend went up to this haggard-looking woman, this woman broken down by life, and he said, Helen. Now, Helen had suffered amnesia. She didn't know she was Helen. Life had been that hard on her. Helen, he said. Helen of Troy. And finally something stirred in her as he looked at her hands and he could see in the lines of her hands that she was indeed Helen. Helen of Troy. And this look came about her and she suddenly began to remember. And friends, the good news is is that she was then put on the throne as the queen. Friends, I tell you that story because God calls to us in our haggard state, our broken lives. Lives sometimes that we don't know have been infiltrated by sin because we think we're doing the right things. And yet, when we look at Jesus and we listen to Jesus, we take time to listen and not always talk. We find how much we've drifted from Jesus. But, but by prevenient grace, God continues to call us and work on us Sometimes sending people into our lives to help us realize this need to come back to our God. To not only come back, but to rekindle that light of love in our lives so that this world can be changed by our willingness to share with others. And so we do have work to do on this movement, this journey of faith. We need to have our light rekindled. We need to draw closer to our God. And I can't think of a, a, a more powerful way than to coming to the Lord's table this morning. To, to receive gracious gifts that represent God in this world and in our lives. And it doesn't cost us a thing, but to get up from where we are in our seats to move a little bit. And we'll come to you if you can't move. But to come forward and to receive these gifts that God has given you. So that your heart can be in tune with God's heart. And that your life can reflect the life of Christ who calls you to go into the world and love other people. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our.